Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews that shows us the unity of your scripture, that shows us the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful text that we get to explore this morning. Please enlighten it to our hearts and our minds, and may you be glorified in our hearing. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right. Who's ready to talk about death and blood? <laughs> I'm only kind of joking. Look, there's a benefit to talking about death and blood, though. And there's a reason that it's such a prominent theme throughout Scripture. We're not called to be interested in death and blood as subject matters in general. We're not called to brood and go, on, on darkness and, and gore, but we are called to be obsessed with one instance of death. We are called to constantly remember it and to dwell on every facet of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his death until he returns. Amen? This is one of many ways we are called to be countercultural. Our American culture has been referred to by, by many thinking Christians as a culture of death. We, that is manifest in our culture's obsession with the legal right to unrestricted abortion. More and more states are legalizing physician-assisted suicide. And we continually devalue our most vulnerable populations. But it is not to be so with you. We are called out of one man's death to be people who champion life. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the way, the truth, and the life. He said that he came so that we may have life and to have it more abundantly. So it's with that in mind that we turn to today's passage in the second half of Hebrews chapter 9. Throughout this book, we've studied how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels in chapters 1 and 2. He's better than Moses in chapters 3 and 4. His inheritance is better than the promised land. In chapters 5 and 6, Christ is better than Aaron and better than the Old Testament priests. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. He is a better sacrifice than those that were given under the Old Testament. Today we examine how Jesus made a better will than the Old Testament and how his blood is better blood than the bulls uh, and goats whose blood was spilled in the Old Testament. All this language points to Jesus being better than the roles or people who come before. But there's one, there's one thing that I want you to notice here. It's not just comparative in nature. It's not just that Jesus is better he is 100%. But it, 
uh, what I want you to see here is that not only is he better, but those prior things pointed to him. They were not just figurative. They were pre-figurative. They were models of him. We learn little things about Jesus through these old things in the Old Testament. And when we put them all together, we have a more full picture of who Jesus is, what he did, and what that means for us. Our passage today points to Jesus making a better will, of which we are the beneficiaries, of which we are the heirs, and Jesus being the better sacrifice for the covering of our sins, which uh, we'll go on into next week. The preacher's coming out of talking about Jesus as the better priest, and kind of as a flow of consciousness, to give you an idea about where he's kind of going with all this, the overall flow of thought goes something like this. Jesus was a better priest, and he's, here's all the ways he was a better priest, and he was a priest under the order of Melchizedek, not under the order of Aaron. And here's how the earthly temple and tabernacle pointed to the presence of God in the, in the future, in eternity, which we heard last week from Lars. And, you know, speaking of priests, priests make sacrifices, and, uh, you know, Jesus is a better sacrifice than the sacrifices made in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. And you know what? That word covenant, that's the same word for testament. That's the same word for will in Greek. And so, you know, this is kind of like a will. The Old Covenant was kind of like a will, and the New Covenant is kind of like a will, and that's what we're going to dive into today. And you know what? Speaking of a will, there's an inheritance. There's got to be a death, and when there's death, there's blood that's spilled. And you know what? Jesus' blood is better. That's kind of his flow of thought here over, the, over these four chapters. That kind of helped me orient myself to this passage, so I hope that was helpful. So, uh, the first point in your outline today is Jesus, the maker of a better will. Look with me at verses 15 through 17 in your scripture. Chapter 9, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's will language. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. As I kind of alluded to before, the word for testament or covenant used or will is the Greek word diateke. It's a very common word. But we have three English words for it, right? Covenant, testament, will. Sometimes it's translated in, in each of those. And throughout this, I think we have testament, covenant, and will all in the same passage. So, but it's all that same word. Commentators agree, though, that the use of the word here is meant to be will or testament, disposition of one's assets for the benefit of others and for the benefit of the testator. Testator is the person who draws up a will, the person who has made a testament. So the preacher, by using this word, draws our attention to the inheritance we have in Christ through his new and better will. So to, to kind of paraphrase that, he's a little... He's a little all over the place. To paraphrase that, you might say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are like wills. The Old Covenant required a death to come into effect. The death of the animals. 
and it had heirs, the nation of Israel, and it had an inheritance, mainly the promised land. And the new covenant is the same way. It has a, it has a death, the death of Jesus, the testator, the person who made the will. It has heirs. The heirs are everyone who trusts in the name of Jesus. And it has an inheritance, eternal life with God and forgiveness of sins. Now, the first thing to note about wills, generally, is that they require the death of the testator. Otherwise, they're not effective. Gifts made in a will, gifts causa mortis, are not effective until the testator dies. Seems like an obvious point. We could probably move on, but there's one more thing I want to tease out of this one point, that the death of the testator is required. Christ died after writing his new will, of whom we are the heirs. He then defeated the condition upon his gift. The condition upon his gift was death. In so doing, in so defeating death, and, in, and by giving us an inheritance, he gave us the ability to defeat death also. There's an irony to that, which I think just neatly displays the power of God. That he had the ability to defeat death, and now having died as a human, he fulfilled the condition precedent to the effectiveness of his gift. And we gain an inheritance from him, which inheritance is the ability to defeat death as he did when he resurrected. Amen? The preacher goes on to discuss how all wills, all covenants, are inaugurated with blood. Look with me at verses 18 and 21. 18 through 21. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Christ during the Last Supper, pointed to the inauguration of the new covenant, which would occur upon the shedding of his blood, for the life is in the blood, as Lars pointed out last week, making his will effective. Covenants are inaugurated by blood, just like covenants, wills, testaments, diatheke, are not effective until the maker or the testator dies. And the death of the testator bestows gifts upon the heirs to Noah, The gift was the creation after the flood, a new creation. To Abraham, he had promised the land and the seed and the blessing of the whole world through his descendants, which was Christ. To the Israelites, he gave the promised land. To us also, the inheritance of final forgiveness of sins and eternal life in a new land, the new Jerusalem, and unfiltered communion with God himself. The preacher points out here how Moses in Exodus 24 sprinkled blood on the people at the inauguration of the Old Covenant, and how hyssop and scarlet yarns were used in the ceremony. Hyssop and scarlet yarns. You know, when Christ was on the cross, it was just before he died, he was offered sour wine, 
on a stick. You know what the stick was made of? Hyssop. Hyssop was used to deliver the blood of the old covenant, just as hyssop was used in the process of extracting the blood of the new covenant. The old pointed to and prefigured the new. Second thing about wills is that heirs are specified. From the outset, we know who the promised gifts are for. In the old covenant, the heirs were the nation of Israel. In the new covenant, the new will, the heirs are anyone who trusts in Jesus to pay for their sin and to reconcile them, to bring them back to God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Anyone who obeys Jesus' command to lay down their life, to pick up their own cross, to follow him, anyone who will repent from living their lives how they want to live them, looking for their own satisfaction, anyone who will turn around and follow Jesus, they can be an heir. So, in a way, this is a class of people, a class of heirs that is open. In property law, this is subject to open. You get a gift to a group of people, and you might find title to something that is fee simple, subject to open. That's what this class is. But the difference here is that it's, it's not a fixed group, right? It's, it's not a people group or an ethnicity. It's open to anyone across time and across cultures. The best thing in the universe is free and available to anyone. Anyone can become an heir. And the more people who enter the class does not diminish the inheritance of anyone else like a human gift. There is plenty of it for anyone. The third thing about wills is that an inheritance is specified. In the Old Covenant, by and large, the inheritance was the land, and fellowship with God. God promised Abraham three things, right? The land, the seed, and the blessing. The land was the promised land. The seed was the nation of Israel. And the blessing of the whole world through his descendants was Jesus. The Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant included fellowship with God as one of the blessings, one of the Gifts, one of the inheritances, through the tabernacle and later the temple. Reaffirmation of the land promise and blessing. So we see inheritance imagery stemming from the new covenant being the last will and testament of Jesus. And as we know, a will is only enforced once a testator dies. And similar, similarly, The old and new covenants were inaugurated with blood, like we've just discussed. Someone had to die in order to make these covenants, and the product of these covenants was an inheritance. The inheritance of the old covenant was a new land where God could dwell with his people, a land for his people where he could dwell with them in his tabernacle and later his temple. And the inheritance we receive... Under the new covenant, the new will is eternal life and the forgiveness of sins 
eternal life in new perfect bodies and a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with his people forever. Revelation 21 says that the place of God is with man. We belong together. We were made for it, and God's place is with us. And that's what we'll enjoy for eternity. If you look at your outline, the three little sub-points under the first section there, A, B, and C, kind of summarize what we've gone over so far before we move on to the next section. Point A, no more death. Jesus' death was once for all. Romans 6 says that the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. No longer will the blood of bulls and of goats play any role in our inheritance. See Hebrews 10, verse 4. We'll go there next week. Look in our passage at verse 26b. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our status as heirs and our inheritance that comes with that has been completely secured by the death of Jesus, and there is nothing more that needs to be done to secure that inheritance. No more blood needs to be spilled. Point B. The class of heirs is much greater, right? Anyone can join this class of heirs. Rather than a race of men, the entire race of men is included in this new inheritance. All of mankind. Jesus was the new and better Jonah who preached the good news to the foreigners as Jonah went to Nineveh, to the Gentiles, to preach repentance. Jesus is the new and better Jonah. And all are welcome to accept this inheritance, to become an heir. Third, point C, the inheritance we have is a lasting one. It's not temporary. You might say Israel had a sure, a certain inheritance in the gift of the promised land where they could have a measure of fellowship with God for a time. At least until AD 70, right? When the temple was destroyed by Rome. As you've seen in the news, Israel is still fighting over the land. But thousands of years later, they've been exiled from the land several times. But the land promise largely was fulfilled through Jacob when they took possession of the promised land. But that promised land that was temporary pointed to and prefigured a better and permanent inheritance of a better land to be enjoyed permanently with perfect and unfiltered community with God. Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is our inheritance in Jesus. Eternal life. But we also get to enjoy fellowship in him to a lesser degree, even in this life, with the Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Holy Spirit our down payment on our eternal inheritance. The presence of God within us as a seal 
a promise of our full inheritance of God's unfiltered presence in eternity. (laughs) Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What an inheritance we have, amen? The second section of your outline is Jesus, the spiller of better blood. Let's look at verses 22 through 26. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the sprinkling of the copies of the heavenly things by Moses. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, Jesus' sacrifice. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look, culturally, as much as we have a culture of death, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about Death, it's by definition quite morbid. We are obsessed with death, but we call it something else. We call abortion reproductive rights. We call physician-assisted suicide end-of-life planning. So we culturally chafe at language of death and the language of blood and of sacrifice. I don't think this is unique to our time when the hymns about being washed in the blood of Jesus were written in the 19th century, they were not very popular among non-believers. There was actually quite a bit of ridicule about those. They were thinking, well, can you imagine actually bathing in someone else's blood? That's Silence of the Lambs stuff. They didn't have Silence of the Lambs back then, I don't think. Revelation, though, shows Jesus wearing a robe dipped in blood. We still sing these songs. We still glory in the blood of Jesus. We still worship and meditate on and think about the gory, bloody death of Jesus. But it's because of this simple fact. This is why we love the blood of Jesus. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's a shocking statement. No forgiveness of sins unless something dies. The wages of sin is death. Let's look at this a little bit. I don't want to just plow through here because this is extremely important. Now, about this verse, a sermon series could be written. So I'm not going to even try to touch everything here. 
But some salient points are these. We see the examples of this axiom in Genesis 3, right? This idea that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins goes all the way back to the fall of man. When Adam and Eve failed to obey God's command as they committed the first sin, you remember what God said to them when he put them in the garden? He said, you can have the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For if you eat of it, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Spiritual death is what Adam and Eve experienced the day they ate from the tree, and on that day they began to physically die. At that moment, God instituted the covenant of salvation when he announced the very first gospel. He said a seed, singular, of Eve would crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent wounds the heel of the seed, mortally wounding him. And even this promised covenant was initiated by spiritual death, by the way, going back to what we were saying before. Later in Genesis, we read of rampant sin when God told Noah to build an ark so he and his family could survive the worldwide flood by which God was going to destroy the world. The penalty for rampant sin and turning away from God was death. And this death initiated a new covenant, the Noahic covenant, whereby God promised not to destroy the world again by water, and he hung up his colorful bow in the clouds to remind us of it. That covenant, too, was instituted by blood and death. So why is there no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, without death? Well, if we were sinless like Adam and Eve before they rebelled, we would have community with God like they did. If sin never entered the world, we could fulfill our human purpose by living in close community and worshiping and glorifying our perfect and holy creator. Our creator, who is, by the way, so perfect that he can have no union, no community, no oneness with sin. Again, there's lots written about this. And I'm, I'm not going to even try to cover all of it, but I'll give you my personal, my personal viewpoint. Again, this is not canon, this is not doctrine, this is just how I like to think about this, and I think it's consistent with Scripture. If it's not, come and tell me. Look, God is life. God created life. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And if we're not able to have community with him, we cannot experience life. And when we cannot experience life, we must experience death. The human life that we enjoy today, during springtime, as things are coming alive, and we get to enjoy being together, the human life we enjoy is God's common grace, in my view, in forbearance of the punishment of human sin. 
I hope that's helpful to you. That is why I believe there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, without death. Because God cannot have unity with sin. And if God is life, if Jesus is life, how can we be with him if we fail to live up to his moral standard? This leads to the question, so what's sin? Maybe I should have flip-flopped these, but sin is... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of different words. that we, we read about transgression. We read about blood guiltiness, iniquity, trespass. At its core, though, sin is a failure to maintain a moral standard, a failure to do a list of things. It's a failure to be perfect. Wayne Grudem says, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So, and, and we most commonly hear of sin in the context between us and God. But think, think with me about your, your group of friends, your closest friend group. You know, if you're a single guy, you might have a bro code. There might be things you just don't do. You just don't date the sister of someone else in the group. That's off limits. If you do that, then you will have put an obstacle between you and your friend. If there's a group of family friends, and one of the families was wrongfully expelled from a club or group or piano lesson, piano teacher then by necessity, by your membership of that friend group, you should boycott that piano teacher. Right? Maybe not. But you, you get where I'm going with this. There's a, there's an accepted code of behavior within friends. There are certain things you just don't do. Emily Post wrote a whole book about this. Emily Post was, lived in the, gosh, late 19th century early 20th century, wrote Etiquette. There's a whole book about what to do to maintain your relationships. Her grandkids still keep it going and keep it updated and tell you what not to write in an email. It's actually quite nice. Now, each of us humans are imperfect people, so we can have community with other imperfect people. If, if let's say... One of the members of, the, of your single guy friend group violates the bro code and begins dating one of the uh, other guy's sisters. There's an obstacle there. Forgiveness is needed. There's, there's something that needs to be gotten over. And because we are imperfect people and we're relating to other imperfect people, what do we say to ourselves when we have to forgive people? You could say, well, I, gosh, you know, I, I, could see how he, I could see how he got there. Or I've done that before, too. You've got to understand. I mean, it's taking all things into consideration. You can't be too mad at the guy. Or even if it's n- totally not understandable, you don't get it, you still go back to, I, do I love my friend more than I love this 
other thing than this piano teacher or but there's a cost to that you have to internalize that someone has to pay that cost someone has to bear that burden forgiveness isn't free it still costs us something when someone offends us and we have to get over it so that's when we sin against each other in our own communities someone still has to pay so thinking about our community with god when we fail to live up to the perfect moral code that god's community requires there are consequences the moral standard that god's community requires is moral flawlessness total holiness because he is morally flawless he is totally holy to be holy is to be separate set apart different other and that is god if we are to be in communion with him we must be or appear to be in the same moral class we must be morally flawless we cannot achieve moral flawlessness on our own can we and the consequences of being morally flawed the consequences of sin is death but god but god has made a way for us to have community he has made a way for us to have unity with him to have society with him to be unified with him but that cannot happen without the shedding of blood like this is not an arbitrary or capricious rule that god has made it is a result of a perfectly just god defending his holiness actively meeting out perfect justice god cannot be polluted by the presence of sin the wages of sin is death as scripture says in romans once there is sin there must be death either of the sinner or of a willing and innocent substitute under the old covenant god allowed for copies of a willing and innocent substitute to be used bulls and goats without blemish take note that they were without blemish signifying their innocence the the spotless lamb the perfect goat pointed toward the one willing sufficient and innocent substitute jesus christ this was jesus death was foreshadowed by god's provision of a substitute for abraham's son isaac when isaac was on the altar and abraham was about to kill him the angel stopped him and said wait don't lay a hand on the boy there's a ram over there in that thicket and thus the idea of substitution was inaugurated the ram was the innocent substitute for isaac's death 
Looking forward to the Mosaic law, the blood of bulls and goats was a copy of the blood of Jesus to which they pointed. And as we'll see next week, it was effective to refer us to Christ, who would then finally do away with sin. We needed an ultimate, and still need, an ultimate once-for-all sacrifice or covering for our sins so that we may appear morally flawless before God. He has made a way, and that is the way that we can have community with him. Point 2B in your outline is Jesus' death dealt with sin once for all. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. For it was to offer himself, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as we'll hear more next week, Jesus' sacrifice was a new and better sacrifice for us. It was a permanent sacrifice for us. No longer do we need to make animal sacrifices. We can claim Jesus' sacrifice for us personally, once for all, and no other source of covering, no other atonement, no other payment is required for us to once again enjoy perfect, unfiltered, eternal community with God himself. Amen? We see this in Genesis 3, the promised seed who will crush the head of the snake. We see it in Psalm 40 when the psalmist, later quoted by Jesus, who's then quoted by the author of Hebrews, says that God does not delight in sacrifices any longer. We see it in Zechariah 13 when the prophet foretells the day of Jesus' crucifixion when there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Once, a single day, not many days. And we saw this last week in Hebrews 9.12, once for all, and today, once for all, and again next week, once for all, it is finished, and it is done. The final point in your outline is, having conquered death, Jesus' return will bring us home to community with himself. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brother, sister, are you eagerly waiting for him? Are you hoping that every, every day that he comes back, that day? Do you wish to see Jesus? Look for that day. Look for him in your life. Look for him in your utter discouragement. Look for him on your mountain in the lives of others around you, in your parenthood, in your friendships, in your work, look for Jesus. You know, God told Jeremiah, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will be your God and you will be my people. In conclusion, we see that the preacher is illustrating through the whole book here that the Old Testament pointed us to Christ. This is his theme in his, in his sermon. And today he's drawing our attention to the fact that that will, covenant, testament structure pointed to the new. We see the themes of blood in the Old Testament pointed to the blood of the new covenants built by Jesus. It's one story. It's not plan B. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you today? What does it mean that the gospel was God's plan all along? Look, the gospel is the best news humanity has ever received. But the fact about the gospel, that it was tied through the Old Testament into the New, that the Old pointed to the New, that Jesus is written on the faces of all the Old Testament saints, that fact, that means something. And I'll tell you what it means to me. It means from the very beginning, from page one, He was thinking of me. He was thinking of you. He had you in mind when he created light out of darkness, when he made Adam from dirt. Even knowing that he would have to come as the sun to suffer and die so he could be with you and me. Because God's plan in creation in the gospel, in history, God's plan in everything was to be with us. It's to be with you and me. The obstacles he overcame in doing this were high and difficult. But he did it anyway. Because he wanted to be with us. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. You know what the joy that was set before him was? Paul says that was us. That was me. It was you. Look, if you're feeling today that you're not wanted by somebody... If, you're, if you've been rejected, if you, if you feel too different than those around you, if you feel like you just don't belong, it's a lie. You are wanted much more desperately than any human could ever want another human. The person who's looking for us has done more than any human could ever do. He's wanted you from before creation. He chases after you like a husband chases after his bride. 
When he hatched his plan to make the world in all its beauty, he wanted to share it with you. The beauty of the relationship between the members of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that he shared before creation is what he wants to share with us. Please stand if you're able to close in prayer. God, thank you for bringing us into this story. Thank you for shedding your blood just to be with us. To know us. To let us know you. Thank you for making us your heirs, bringing us into your family, giving us a better gift than anything we can experience during this life. Thank you, God. In your son's name we pray.